This is an AMI podcast. This is an AMI podcast. The topics discussed in this podcast related to domestic abuse may be upsetting or triggering for some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Hi, I'm Fern Nullum, and welcome to Into You, the podcast where we put love under the microscope, shedding light on the do's, don'ts, and nightmare scenarios we find ourselves in while flirting with romance. That intensity, love, hate, push, pull, back, forth, it's seductive. We all come at dating from a slightly different angle, but we are often faced with very similar situations to shape up to. Our brain is not necessarily our friend. Oh, I can definitely relate to that one. <laughs> so true. Dating can uncover things about ourselves we never knew before. So without further ado, let's get into you. Let's get everything all set up these days, don't we? <laughs> all ready to go. Yeah, there we go. I'm so pleased you've come back to the crossroads where romance meets psychological analysis here on Into You, and where it's finally time for the third in our three-part series on domestic violence, as we find out what causes abuse and how we can all start to fight back. Last time, I spoke to TEDx speaker Andrew Payne about how he coped with his abusive marriage. I'd often come in with sort of cuts on my face, and people would be like, hey, what's up with your face? And it was always down to a shaving incident. And what made it so hard for him to walk away. I didn't want to leave my daughters in the hands of an abusive person, and I feared for my contact with my daughters if I left. Today, I'll be chatting to speaker, social psychologist and author of But He Says He Loves Me, Dr. Dina McMillan, about how to quickly spot a potential abuser. One of the most reliable warning signs is speed. And why our minds don't always help us in love. Your brain is bizarre and it bonds to intensity. But first, I was curious to find out what it was that had made Dr. Dina so passionate about working in the field of domestic abuse. My daughter's best friend, her mother came to me and said a close friend of hers was staying with them because of an abusive relationship and asked me if I could help. And I did what I could and realized I was severely lacking in information about abusive relationships. So I went back and got additional training specifically in domestic abuse and violence. Once I started working in the field, I found it fascinating. I really wanted to help, but I found it incredibly frustrating. My goal is to be an interior designer. Note the wallpaper, okay? I wanted to be an interior designer. I said, I am not doing this anymore. I am so tired of going around in a circle and nothing ever changes. And I went out in Rose Bay in Sydney. I was ready to quit. And all of a sudden the voice came and said, no, (laughs) you can't quit. I was like, what do you mean I can't quit? And then all of a sudden, all of my social psychology just came flooding into my brain. My knowledge of manipulation and learning and interaction, it just smacked into all of my hands-on experience working with victims, including at that point, more than 2,500 interviews with victims and survivors. Wow. Wait a minute. 
Why are we waiting until people's lives are destroyed? There's information I can give people right away. So are there some people who are more susceptible than to abuse? Absolutely. Your brain adapts. Your brain does not think you have to like something to adapt. The way the brain works is fascinating. That whole early process, the testing and training process, where they're pushing against your boundaries to see what you will do, which is what they do from the very start. Mm. If you've been trained by an abuser, your boundaries are often soft and fluid. So you don't even think, I need to break up with this guy or I need to get more information. A woman from a traditional background where she has been brought up to surrender to male control is, of course, at risk because if she meets a hyper-controlling man, she won't notice because there's no culture that teaches men to abuse women. Please get that out there. There is no culture that said it's okay. There are just no safeguards in that culture. And also, nothing will make you vulnerable like thinking you're immune, too smart to get caught by an abuser. What are some of those telltale signs? I'm sure there's lots, but can you just give us a few? I would say look out for too much too soon. Mm -hmm. Too many compliments, too many promises, too many gifts given or promised in the future, too much talk about the future too early in the relationship. Because abusers are extremely uncomfortable with the dating process until they have their target fully under their control. So one of the most reliable warning signs is speed. And I suppose in the society we're in now with Tinder and all of these apps and everything, we like to be kind of bombarded with all of these promises and all of these wonderful things. Does that make you sort of more vulnerable to this stuff? Absolutely. It makes abusers seem like a good idea at first because they're listening very closely. They're asking lots of questions because they know they need that information. They'll need that information for the rest of the relationship. They have to know what to promise you. They have to know how to punish you. So they need real insight into what you think, what you feel, what you want. They're focused. And I look at the things like Tinder and that. I don't care what kind of social norms you have. We have no control over oxytocin. So you sleep with a guy, you don't have control over whether or not you get attached to him. I mean, 50 shades of gray. Oh, my God. <laughs> well, you have a narcissistic, sadistic psychopath who happens to be handsome and have money. So all of a sudden, he's the focus of all these books that are being foisted on us, encouraged to read. I looked at that and I thought, I'm never going to be an interior designer at this rate, you know? <laughs> Too busy. How can I leave my field when there's just so much work to be done? <laughs> you have to screen what you expose yourself to. Oh, well, bad boys are more fun. I don't know. Going to the emergency room or being left at the altar or having him sleep with your friends or your sister, I don't really consider that a lot of fun. No, doesn't appeal to me. <laughs> it's very easy to look at these relationships and be like, I would never let a man treat me like that or a woman treat me like that. What is it that changes when you do get involved with someone and they start treating you badly? Well, I'm going to creep you and your audience out for a minute. Right. Okay. Abusers start off very early. I was hired a few years ago to do my Unmasking the Abuser series and they hired me to train anybody who works for the city in any capacity. So I had a whole class full of crossing guards at one point. Boy, what a bunch of savvy people. Okay, all these retirees that are watching what's happening. 
but I also had childcare workers. So all of these people are working to take care of pre-kindergarten children. And when we went through the main tactics used by abusers, they remarked on how many of them they were seeing in the small children who came from families where the same-sex parent was an abuser. Little boys had a tendency to mirror the behavior if their mother was in a relationship with an abuser. Abusers don't have to be academically smart, but they are strongly compelled to have these toxic relationships, so they put a lot of effort in it. By the time they're in their late teens, they're often very skilled manipulators, and the tactics they use are incredibly powerful. All of us are vulnerable to them. Now, people are asking, are children damaged only if they see the abusive dynamic? No, it's not just that. One aspect of being in a relationship with an abuser is they're incredibly hyperdelous. So an abusive partner will actively interfere with your ability to properly nurture your children. As an example, I had a woman come in for a restraining order. She had a six-month-old son. The boy was still being breastfed. And when he would cry at night, if the father was home, he would not allow the mother to go to the child and comfort the child. He said he had to man up and that it was daddy's time now. So you take a child that's hungry and wet, they start to get a bit clingy. It causes a psychological issue. Even if that kid didn't grow up ever seeing this man hit his mother, the fact that this guy would actively interfere with the nurturing process is still going to cause psychological problems in that boy. And so what do abusive partners get out of abusing their partners? Power. It makes them feel powerful. They get a rush out of it. In Australia, your records, if you're counseling somebody, can be subpoenaed by the courts. In the United States, they cannot. And predators always know the rules. So these guys knew, unless they threatened to kill themselves or their partner while they were talking to me, I had to take whatever they told me to the grave. So they were very happy to take that mask off and talk to me and show me who they really were. And they would tell me the most horrible things. Oh, I know how to manipulate her. I can manipulate her family. I'll get the judge to believe me. They would say all of these things. Then they'd go to court and I'd be in that courtroom and they would say the exact opposite and they'd be believed. Or they'd have a session with the partner and they'd say the exact opposite of what they said to me. They talk about how much they reveled in having that kind of power. It makes them feel clever. It makes them feel in control when they can get their partner to jump through hoops or law enforcement to jump through hoops. It makes them feel powerful. It gives them an ego boost. It's part of that narcissistic supply that they need. It feeds their narcissism to be able to move people around like pieces on a board. These are some sick individuals, I'm going to tell you that. But they are not sorry. They are not repentant. They are fully aware of what they're doing. Even going into it, you're saying they know what they're doing and they follow through this sort of strategy, as it were. Predators always figure out how to be the most successful at what they do. When you have a society, for instance, like here in Australia, abusers often get away with quite a lot if they claim that they had been drinking before they did it. I'm drunk, excuse. But other societies that don't allow a free ride because of drunkenness won't claim that. I've heard them claim sleeping pills. I've heard them claim 
ADHD. They will do whatever they think they can get away with so they will not be punished and so they can continue doing what they do. But of course they know. They're well aware of it. When they go to court, it was like, I don't know what happened. I just love her so much that I just saw red and I just... To find out that that's a blatant lie, he was like, how dare she stand up to me? I had to put her back in her place. She had to know who was in charge. Or even I had a bad day and I felt like torturing her a little bit. God, how did that feel for you standing there just, you know, knowing that they were lying? Uh, went through lots of hair dye, redecorated my house. The interior designer came out. <laughs> <laughs> you know, when you're faced with ugliness, make your space beautiful. That's my creed. <laughs> what a quote. <laughs> well, it was all like, because I couldn't, I could not reveal even by expression that I knew this person was lying. It was part of my job to be unbiased and to just witness it. Mm. But that's why I needed to write the book. I came out of that meeting and her name is Robin Brooks. She was director of the Benevolent Society at the time. And we came out of a survivor's meeting and she said, you know, it doesn't matter how different the victims are. It's like the abusers all read the same handbook. Mm. I was so concerned that women really didn't understand how these men think. So the book is divided. On the left-hand page, throughout the book, it's an amalgam of all the abusers I talked to without the bad language. Right. They're talking as though to another guy, saying, this is how you train your woman. On the right-hand pages all throughout the book is me saying, this is what it looks like when you're first being approached. This is what it feels like so you can protect yourself. And I warn people to read the right-hand pages first because... Even without the bad language or any extremism, the left-hand page can be very confronting. It's so easy, isn't it, when you hear about this stuff to think, but my situation is different. And even if your friends and family might sort of say things they don't understand, you know, there's all of these excuses that come up, aren't there, when it's you in the situation. Well, that's, that's what happens too often. And everybody thinks they're different. I promise you're not. I mean, all together with tactics and a set of tactics that are not quite as common that I call honorable mentions because they're commonplace, but not like the absolutes. Mm -hmm. It all together is 25 tactics, so 25 different ways. I hate the fact that when I started this program back in 2007, so we're talking about a millennia ago, mm -hmm. at that point, there had been no reduction in risk of abuse since the mid-1980s. Wow. It has changed now. It's gone up. Oh. <laughs> We've got to do something, Fern. We have to do something. Dr. Dina's passion for getting the word out about abuse and changing the rocky landscape of many modern-day relationships was easy to see. And yet, the more I spoke to her, so too was my own past naivety in wanting to rush into love before I'd really got to know my latest crush at all. I began to wonder what strategies other people have in order to help ensure that they're getting into the right kind of relationship. So, as is the protocol of most scientific studies in 2021, I put out a post on social media, and here are a selection of my favourite answers. The sentence reads, When in the early stages of dating, my number one rule is... Dot, 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 finish the sentence. 
frank. Never make excuses for bad behaviour. Good call, Frank. In my experience, people can come up with enough lame excuses all by themselves. Karen, if you have an instinct, trust it. Mmm, it's amazing how often we trust total strangers over ourselves, isn't it, Karen? Kenny, don't be so eager to impress them that you forget to pay attention to whether their behaviour impresses you. Oh, Kenny, I have been very guilty of that in the past. And Daisy, when in the early stages of dating, my number one rule is, if I'm watching the clock ticking, then we aren't clicking. (laughs) Real and rhyming. I wouldn't want to be the person wasting Daisy's time, that's for sure. Dr. Dina was speaking about something so sinister and yet doing it in such a relatable way, as she painted a vivid picture in my mind of a seductive honey trap that I think most of us would be tempted to have just a tiny taste of. It struck me that while this strategy can often make us feel special, as though we're one of a kind, the principles behind it were starting to seem almost universal. I wondered if, when it came down to it, Abusive relationships were pretty much the same in all walks of life. Some tactics are more prevalent in certain cultures than in others. Mm. So one of the things I do and have done since the beginning is customize it. I'm writing a book specifically for Black American women. In the United States, Black women have the highest rates of intimate partner violence and the highest rates of intimate partner murder. None of the Black Lives Matter protests were talking about this. Statistically, Black women have a much higher risk of being killed by a Black man than they do by a police officer. Mm. We need to start getting the statistics to go down. We have to give accurate information that people can remember. So pick up the warning signs at the start. Mm -hmm. Things like asking for nude photos and sex videos. We have got to discourage women from doing that because every abuser I know of uses it as blackmail afterwards. I found that part in your TED Talk really interesting where you said the prolonged contact, you know, the very intense contact at the start, creating this kind of artificial intimacy. It definitely does make you feel like you know that person and a lot better than you really do. There was a a very badly written book that was extremely popular back in the 90s called The Rules. A couple of women just picked and gathered information from different psychologists and people who had gave dating advice and they put it all together in a book. They had no way of knowing what information was worthwhile, which information was absolute crap. (laughs) They recommended that you have a timer when you're talking to somebody you're newly dating. You set it for like half an hour and you never let any interaction go past that. Now, I wouldn't say having a timer that goes off and the person's like, time's up, sorry. (laughs) Speed dating. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's like, like speed dating. But I would say... With the warning signs that I give, it makes you just so much more careful. You don't invest at all until you know that what you're seeing is real. If this is Prince Charming and not what Karen Sammonson calls Prince Harming, he's not going to mind you being careful. And men have got to get over this thing thinking that women are necessarily safe. I know that when I was the coordinator for the domestic violence fatality review team for Orange County, California. The men that I saw on the slab were all tall men with petite wives who they underestimated 
because the size difference made them feel artificially safe. So these guys were being shot. They were being run over by cars. One guy was hammered to death. Don't judge a book by its cover. Well, pay attention. I mean, the things I talk about for male abusers is often the exact same stuff used by female abusers. People just don't take them seriously. It works both sexes. There's a little bit of difference. One of the biggest differences between men and women as far as abuse goes, men aren't brought up to be prey. So some of the tricks, like the negging, do you know what negging is? Kind of a backhanded compliment. It's kind of a veiled aggression. So you tell a young woman, oh, I love your dress. My mom has one like that. Or you say something like, you know, really dismissive about their education or, but you make it like, oh, it's great that you got through college, you know, <laughs> just coming up with some way to take a compliment and reverse it. Mm. It doesn't work as well on men like it does on women because women have been brought up since we're little to be people pleasers. So if somebody says something negative to us, we want to get them back on side. Oh, I can definitely relate to that one. <laughs> a guy is more likely to think, bitch, and then keep walking. <laughs> <laughs> What's the best way of nicely and kindly saying to somebody, I'm not sure about this relationship, is it right for you? Oh, now that gets really tough because intervening can be challenging if the person is still under the other person's control. Mm -hmm. Because as soon as that abuser finds out that you have not accepted the relationship, they're going to do everything they can to get you away from that person that they're trying to control. So the best you can do is plant a seed because there's nothing worse than going to somebody and saying, I'm not sure about Joe. I don't know what it is. Just something about the way he looks at you. Or are you sure? He seemed kind of in a mood. That does not help. You need to say, look, I've been reading up on abusive relationships and I'm sorry, he has several of the signs. Now I could be wrong. Here's another option on that. Say, I've been listening to this podcast and I want to listen to this podcast with you. And I want you to tell me what you think, because I was thinking about Roger and I can't help but wonder if he was an abuser. Let's listen to this podcast and then you tell me what you think. It's only half an hour. Yes. Because one of the things about those psychological manipulation used by abusers is that it works on anybody. It's effectiveness is based on levels of exposure. So anybody that keeps being around someone who does these things is going to be inclined to get involved with this person. Even after I wrote the book, I had a guy go out with me and he had all the warning signs. I went on a date with a guy and I could have cut the date early, but I continued because number one, I wasn't afraid of him physically. And number two, I need stories for my seminars. <laughs> I use him all the time because here's another bit of Key info. See how he handles the word no. This guy, we were supposed to meet for coffee, and he kept having all these excuses why we had to meet later and end up going to dinner. So we go to dinner, and then he asked me if I want wine. I don't drink with people I don't know. I don't drink much anyway, but I certainly don't drink with people I don't know. So I said no. Mm -hmm. No, he excuses himself to go to the men's room and comes back with a bottle of wine and two glasses. Oh, I, I told you I didn't want any wine. He sets it down, starts pouring. And he said, oh, wine's not alcohol. What? <laughs> and I thought to myself, oh, goody. 
somebody to use for my seminars. <laughs> Just get your notebook out and write this down. <laughs> I, I was like, oh, yeah, you got to have story. <laughs> so we continue on the day. He was good company. He listened and inter- interacted like they do. Time comes to go home. And he said, listen, can I come and stay at your house? Hmm. I told him, I'm sorry. I don't bring strangers to my house. So I go to get in the cab. He runs around and gets in the other side. So I had the cab driver take me to a house down the street from where I lived. After he got out, I had the driver take off and go to my house. We're taught from the time we're little to be nice. I'm very nice. I'm just not trusting. If I don't know you, I don't trust you. I'm not going to do something that makes me uncomfortable to make you feel better. I just won't. Mm. You shouldn't ask. It's like in my new book, I have the woman go on a date with this guy, and he does it so smoothly. Oh, you really have to try this dish. They do this really well. I'm sure you'll like it. So he orders for her. Mm. The server comes and asks if they want dessert. And he says, oh, no, thank you. We don't want dessert. And she said, actually, yes, I do. And she watches him to see what he does. Now, she wasn't really hungry, so she just ordered like a really basic little fruity thing and just picked at it. That wasn't the point. The point was not letting him control every aspect of that date. And it made him uncomfortable, and she could tell. Things like that. How easy is that? See, I might say no once, but then I feel like if they then ignored me and carried on... I'd find it hard to say no again, you know, and I think a lot of people are in the same situation. So they need to channel their inner Dr. Dina. (laughs) Pretend you're a black American woman, okay? The thing is, I'm not mean and yell. I didn't do anything aggressive. No. I just didn't back down. So when he poured it, that's fine. I just didn't drink it. You know, I didn't make a scene. I didn't run out of it. Of course, as I said, he was valuable to me. I was like, okay, because any guy you can't trust in a restaurant, I'm going to take him to my house and think he's not going to try to have sex with me, whether I want to or not. Obviously, people say love is blind. But is there something psychologically when you're in love with somebody that, that does make you not see what they're doing to you, how they're treating you? It does give you warped view. One of the things I talk about is something called cognitive distortion. That when we have a certain set of beliefs or mindset, it will distort how we perceive. We will both look at the same thing and I'll notice all the reds and blues and greens. You'll only notice the pinks and the mauves. So it does distort things. But one of the things I suggest in my book is to get a support group because being sexually attracted to someone, it causes that unconscious brain, the primal brain to wake up and it's like... It's raging and it turns your whole logical, rational brain off. Some women get really emotional immediately, too. As soon as they go out with a guy and he seems nice, they're naming their children. (laughs) Even if it's just sexual attraction, it does cause cognitive distortion. It causes a bit of, of blindness. So you need a core group of friends that when you go out with someone, you share the details of what how it went. And there has to be an agreement. Two things in agreement with everybody. One, you do not have the right to veto somebody going out with someone else. So they don't have the power to tell you, you can't see him anymore. Right. Also, you make an agreement that if they tell you they see a warning sign, you take it seriously and you get more information. Ooh, I like that. It's just like going to Weight Watchers. If you're accountable having to stand in front of the room and get on the scale, if you're accountable to other people... It 
helps you maintain that distance, but that can keep you removed enough so that you do not emotionally, sexually, psychologically invest until you know what you're getting. It is buyer beware. You rush in, they will make it so hard for you to get out. What is it that creates that bond? Our brain is not necessarily our friend. Whenever you go on a diet and it thinks you're starving, so it lowers your metabolism to make it harder, your brain is bizarre and it bonds to intensity. So somebody that's going to make you really happy and really sad has a huge advantage emotionally over somebody that will keep you at a moderate level. It works in animals too. I don't get it. Some of the things that our brain does, I'm like, I haven't figured out why. But you just have to know that it does, that that intensity, love, hate, push, pull, back, forth, it's seductive. When you notice somebody promising you the world, talking about the future, saying you're the best thing since sliced bread, but then treating your accomplishments with contempt or being blasé or mocking your beliefs or your friends or talking about how they don't like something that you do. That kind of emotional roller coaster is seductive. So immediately you talk to your support group and say, it's bizarre. I almost didn't want to tell you this because it made me feel so much, you know, when he was doing this and doing that. Have your friends help rescue you so that you get enough distance so you don't get caught in his trap. It's hard to do it on your own. And so talking of support groups and the people surrounding, what can everyone do as a society to help reduce abuse? Is it mainly about education? As I said, I narrowed it down to the most reliable tactics used by abusers. Everyone should know these tactics, even if they are happily in a relationship, because they are connected to other people. It can be their kids, it can be their friends, it can be a work colleague. If society can put them under the spotlight, they wouldn't be so darn successful. The ones that aren't nice with an obvious antisocial personality disorder, you don't need my help. You know you're in trouble. It's the other ones that are able to fool, but they usually are only able to do it for a short period of time. The advantage that we have is that they are in such a rush because they're so uncomfortable with a partner who they don't control. If you say, I'm taking it slow, and you mean it and you do it, that on its own is going to narrow the opportunity for an abuser to get into your life. What has your work with domestic abuse taught you about love or or just about people, about relationships? What have you learned? That there is real love in the world. What's real holds up under scrutiny. And I know some absolutely marvelous people of both sexes. I know some really good relationships. I am an absolute romantic. I believe in true love. I have not let abuse scar me. And I don't want anybody who's been in an abusive relationship to be scarred. Get informed instead. I will be, as you mentioned earlier, channeling my inner Dr. Dina from here forth. If you need some help, let me know. I'm more than happy, Fern, to be part of your support group. Let's talk about it. Oh, that's great. Oh, wait, I can't believe I'm part of your support group. That's amazing. <laughs> okay, we'll talk soon. While I was openly thrilled to have a social psychologist on my team, Dr. Dina's urge to seek support in general was one I saw so much value in. If you or someone you know is experiencing domestic abuse, help is available. 
There are links in the show notes for resources in Canada and the UK. As always, I want to hear from you. Who do you go to for a second opinion when dating? And what do you see as potential red flags in others? Leave me a comment and let me know. For now, though, you've been listening to Into You with me, Fern Bullen. Special thanks to my guest, Dr. Dina McMillan, whose links will, of course, be in the show notes. Also to Joshua Holland and Sam Robinson for technical support and to the manager of AMI, Andy Frank. Leave me your feedback at feedback at ami.ca. And if you liked what you heard, make sure to search for Into You on your favorite or indeed any podcast distributing platform and subscribe for more episodes coming your way on the first Thursday of every month. I can't believe this one's over already. This was an AMI podcast. For more accessible media, visit AMI.ca.